Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And, uh, once again, I have to begin by apologizing for not getting this podcast out sooner. You know, uh, while I don't actually have any complaints about growing old, uh, at least from a physical standpoint, because, uh, well, everything seems to be working fine and with very few aches and pains, what I have noticed about myself lately is that, uh, well, I've become very undependable. When I was younger, uh, I was great at multitasking and, uh, well, people knew that they could count on me carrying through with whatever I said I'd do. But sadly, uh, well, that's no longer the case with me, I guess. Uh, it seems that I've become very undependable in my old age, or uh, I should say my older age, because, uh, well, I plan on getting a lot older before actually thinking of myself as being in old age. So uh, if I've begun a correspondence with you that seems to have dropped off into a black hole, or if you are uh, one of the two fellow saloners whom I've promised to uh, read your manuscripts, well, I've uh, completely fallen down on the job. Since my email uh, continues to fill up each day, and since I've completely screwed up my attempt at a filing system, those things uh, have kind of slipped away from me. And uh, if you are one of those wonderful people who I've been so rude to, well, I do hope you can forgive me. The lesson that I'm taking away from my bad behavior is that, uh, well, I simply shouldn't commit to doing anything other than producing these podcasts and uh, continuing to flail away at my next book. And to our other fellow saloners, like the two plant lovers and others who have made donations to help offset the expenses associated with these podcasts, I deeply appreciate your help. And I'm sorry for not yet sending a personal thank you note before now. Hopefully I won't let that slip through the cracks much longer. But uh, in case you're wondering why I've stopped saying the first names of donors, it's uh, because over half of them have asked me not to mention their names in a podcast, and I don't want to slip up and make a mistake. Uh, you know, I can certainly understand where uh, people are coming from, as there are really still a lot of people in the world who can and will give us a hard time for even being interested in these topics, uh, let alone to be contributing to their widespread distribution. So a huge thank you goes out to all of our donors over the years, and uh, uh, you recent ones, I'll do my very best to get a personal thank you note out to you. Uh, well, eventually, that is. <laughs> Undependable me, huh? Now, getting on with today's program, well, it's not what I originally planned on presenting today. A couple of days ago, I was uh, almost finished editing the next Planque Norte lecture uh, when Pez informed me that the uh, next speaker had uh, just then requested that she be able to listen to her talk before giving the okay to podcast it. Uh, and now when I say I edit these talks, what, what I mean is that I'm not cutting anything out. Uh, I'm just eliminating the places where there's really a long pause or where someone asks a question that wasn't picked up by the microphone. And uh, also there are some spots where the speaker's voice gets uh, quite low when they look away from the mic or sometimes get really loud when they are excited. And uh, in each of those places, uh, well, they require a little touch-up, and usually that means several hours of work before it's ready to podcast. 
So uh, when I got the news that it would still be a while before I could podcast that particular talk, I just moved it to the bottom of the queue and uh, put the salon aside for a day or so while I worked on getting my enthusiasm back up and beginning to work on something new again. But then uh, the day after my scheduled talk got put on hold, I received a package in the mail from Bruce Damer, and it included a DVD of a talk that Terrence McKenna gave with Fraser Clark as the MC at the Megatripolis Club. Uh, it was an event back in the summer of 1994 in the UK. It was way back last summer sometime when I first received an inquiry from Susanna LaFond in the UK who had a video of that event and offered to get it transferred to a format that I could use to uh, strip the audio for this podcast. Well, over the ensuing months, I kind of dropped the ball myself, but then Susanna met Bruce when he was in Europe somewhere, and she either gave him the DVD then or mailed it to him later. But in any event, uh, Bruce had the DVD for a couple of months, thinking that he and I would be getting together in person. Uh, however, that didn't happen, and so he finally mailed it to me last week. Now, besides Susanna, I'm not sure who else to thank for getting this talk to me, uh, other than Rainbow Heart, whose uh, name was on the disc. And uh, that may be Susanna's playa name, I'm not really sure. But I do think that this disc and uh, the two others that I haven't had a chance to review yet that were also in the package, uh, well, I think they've been to Burning Man because there's a lot of playa dust on the disc envelopes. <laughs> now, the first voice that we'll hear is that of Fraser Clark, who has also been a featured speaker here in the salon on past occasions. And uh, in his introduction, Fraser says that Terrence will speak for about an hour and then there will be time for questions. But around 30 minutes into this talk, we begin hearing Fraser reading questions uh, from the audience and uh, Terrence answering them. So I don't know if the video cut it out for a bit in the middle or if uh, this is the way it went. Uh, since I didn't watch the video as I was capturing the audio portion from it, uh, I don't know for sure what happened to the one-hour talk and then the questions. Uh, maybe someday I'll take the time to watch the entire thing, but right now I figured it best to just get this podcast out before any more delays. So now let's join Fraser Clark, Terrence McKenna, and a room full of very noisy and talkative people in the background while Terrence does his best to shout over the crowd noise and attempt to keep the attention of a large group of people who really may have been there more for the music and dancing than for a McKenna rap. And uh, keep in mind that this talk was given in 1994, which was even before any widespread discussion about the potential Y2K problem or the uh, millennium or 2012. But as you listen, put yourself back in that time frame and I think you're going to begin to understand Terrence's role in stirring things up about the 2012 event, which is now only a few days away. It's probably the most adventurous mind on the planet today. I just like to say one little thing about the man himself behind what he talks about. I mean, what I like about Terence is he's not just a philosopher, he's not just an intellectual. The man is a revolutionary and an iconoclast, and he's doing lots of things besides just talking ideas. So that's it. Terence McKenna. Terence is going to talk for about one hour, and then we'll do question and answer. What I'd like you to do is, write, if you have a question, write on a piece of paper during the hour, at the end of the hour, and bring it up to where else To here. To me, up here. I'll be sitting at the back of the stage. So just give me. That way it works a bit more efficiently. Okay. All right. 
you sit? Do you stand? What do you do? Is the sound good? Is the light good? So are you happy to be here? <laughs> good. So am I. <clears throat> Well, before I get into the bulk of the lecture tonight, I thought I would just give you some news from the frontier of pharmacology, which is that for the second time in the 20th century, a mega-hallucinogen has been discovered that is active in micrograms Quantities. You got the sound under control back there? Up there? Down there? Good. So, what this is, is an incredible opportunity for the community. Because this compound that is active at 300 micrograms when smoked is not illegal anywhere in the world to grow, to manufacture, to possess, to transport. So here is the story. For 45 years it's been a commonplace of the botanical literature that there was a Mexican plant called Salvia divinorum. Yes. But it was always said that it was either impossible to confirm its hallucinogenic activity, or whatever it was, it was so unstable that it would only persist in the plant a few hours after it was picked. A few years ago, about five years ago, an American anthropologist, uh, one of our own, Brett Blosser, went to the Oaxacan Mountains and spent some time with the uh, Indians down there and they showed him how to get off on the, the plant, the leaf. And he described to me and a number of other people quite extraordinary states of consciousness that were coming from this particular shamanic plant. That's where it rested until about ten months ago when an underground chemist in an earthquake-prone city who prefers to remain anonymous set out to actually isolate the constituents of Salvia Devonorum. And in short order, he overcame the conventional wisdom and produced a crystalline material active at the microgram range. To check what it was, he purchased a chromatographic standard of a compound called salvorine alpha that had been extracted from this plant 15 years ago. And he smoked that. And the experience was identical. So we now know that there is a new chemical compound in the isoquinoline family that is active in the microgram range 
that occurs in a plant that looks like Joe plant. It's a house plant. It's a window box plant. It's a relative of the coleus. It grows from Nome to the equator. And it's legal. So, for the first time since the psychedelic issue has been before the community, we have an opportunity to create a psychedelic community that is entirely within the law. No laws need to be changed, and no laws are broken if we avail this to ourselves of this stuff to manufacture it, to transport it, to use it, to explore it for psychotherapy, to do it on stage, as I'm about to do. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Steady, steady. Easy. And this is, this can serve by way of example to point out the fact that there are probably many such plants still to be discovered. The interesting thing about Salvia divinorum is that uh, it's not related to any substance currently illegal. Therefore, the argument that it's a structural relative of something illegal is also fallacious. So, at least in the case of the American government, they will have to present medical and scientific evidence that there is a problem with this compound before it will be possible to make it illegal. This is just one more example, along with Ibogaine, Phalaris, Ayahuasca, so forth and so on, of the way in which the Earth itself is stepping in to aid in the agenda of cultural transformation. There are too many doorways in nature that lead to heaven. There are too many paths to the mystery for any institution or social policy to be able to thwart the intent of the human species to evolve. This is part of what this end of millennia cultural transformation is about a rediscovery of the richness of the gifts of nature. I mentioned Ibogaine. Ibogaine is another hallucinogen, a West African plant that uh, induces intense visionary experiences and is now being looked at by the National Institute for Drug Abuse in the United States as possibly a strong contender for being a pharmacological intervention on cocaine and heroin addiction. Imagine how the social understanding of the concept altered state and psychoactive substance would be changed if we discovered that the solution to many of our drug problems are drugs, you see. I mean, I maintain that they were the solution to many of our problems thousands and thousands of years ago, and that it was the creation of societies so constipated, so ego-bound, so hierarchically stratified, 
that they couldn't tolerate the presence of an ecstatic shamanism as a social phenomenon. It's the rise of those kind of societies that have led us to the brink of planetary catastrophe. So that sort of brings me to what I, my major theme for the evening, or, or sort of what I wanted to explore with you. I'm interested in the question, is there any reason why smart people should hope? Is there any reason why people love analytical intelligence who are connected up to the facts of the matter about the state of the world should hope. The conventional wisdom is basically no. The smart people who are straight are involved in simply the media management of what has turned into a slow apocalypse, spreading starvation, exacerbated class differences, uh, toxified agriculture, so forth and so on. I don't believe the establishment thinks there are solutions. Their policy is basically the management of panic, which is hardly a forward-moving uh, approach to the adventure of human civilization. So in order to find permission to hope, to believe in something, the first thing you have to do is reconstruct your intellectual model of the universe from the very, very ground up. As long as you're trying to make sense of reality inside the boundaries of the old paradigm, there's no hope. There's no way out of the box of capitalism, monogamy, consumer fetishism, egoism, money worship, no way out, no way, no way out. So what that means is we have to return to first principle. We have to re-understand who we are in the universe, what we are in the universe and what we mean to it. And in order to do that, we have to, I almost use the word attack, but let's be academic and say, provide a critique of science. Because this is the world that science built with the henchmen of capitalism and Christianity. But a critique of science that brings it to a new model of reality is the way to open a door to hope. Okay, so here's the deal. Science has overlooked two immensely salient facts about reality that are not abstruse and to be deduced from analyzing the contents of cyclotrons or the reflectivity data on the moons of Pluto, science has missed two immensely obvious facts about reality. And here's what they are. The first one <clears throat> is not such a stretch. The first fact is that across all levels of phenomena, 
atomic, ordinary organic chemistry, biological systems, cultural systems, your life across all levels of phenomena, the way nature works is that she conserves novelty. What I mean by this is that the universe produces novelty and then it struggles to maintain it. The universe is a novelty-producing engine of some sort. And the further you move from the birth of the universe, the more novel the universe becomes until you arrive here tonight. This is the most novel moment to date in the history of the universe. It is not only a world of astrophysical forces, or a world of astrophysical forces plus organic chemistry, or astrophysical forces, organic chemistry plus biology. But this is a world that has all the levels of novelty that have accumulated throughout the career of the evolving universe. Each level built on the level which preceded it. And one thing I want to point out about this is that this is the first, if you agree with this, then the first payoff is that suddenly human importance is taken back from the scientific view that we are the chancely evolved witnesses of a meaningless process in an ordinary corner of a universe too vast to conceive or imagine. That incredibly disempowering picture of who we are in the cosmos is uh, <clears throat> misled. The actual facts of the matter are that in our bodies, in our brains, in the culture that we have assembled, all the novelty that preceded us has been exploited and is expressed and is honored. We then begin to look like partners in the project of the production of novelty, and more novelty, and yet greater novelty. Okay, that's the first fact which uh, science overlooked, the conservation of novelty. The second fact that science overlooked is more of a stretch in terms of the break with the past style of thinking that it requires. The second fact which science overlooked is the fact that each advance into novelty, each new level of novelty occurs faster than the level which preceded it. This is incredibly important because what it means is that the culmination of the novelty-producing process could be far closer to us in time than we might ordinarily suppose using scientific assumptions about reality. 
And those of you who have heard me before have heard me say, history is the shockwave of eschatology. What that means is that the presence of ourselves on this planet, using culture, using language, transferring information electronically around the world, our presence on the planet means that the universal process of novelty production has entered one of its very short cycles. And so what it means is that asymptotic acceleration of change is built into the structure of space-time itself in this region of the cosmos. History is ending. Time is literally running out on this planet. And it isn't about political mistakes or anything where we should blame ourselves. It's in the structure of the fabric of space-time itself. And the proof of this is ourselves. Because the emergence of conscious human beings out of advanced primates occurred with such explosive suddenness that it, like history, argues that we are in the presence of a process that is quickly beginning to accelerate and cross boundary level after boundary level as it bursts through to greater and greater degrees of freedom. So I believe that we are actually preparing to decamp from ordinary history. I don't know exactly what that means, but the continuation of history for decades, centuries, millennia is inconceivable. That is the hallucination of the establishment because it cannot imagine the actual truth of the situation, which is that the cascade of forces set off by Greek science, by the phonetic alphabet, by monotheism, this cascade of social forces is now propelling the entire global social structure into another dimension, literally another dimension. I mentioned the, seller, the, uh, the conservation of novelty. Now I want to go back over it from a slightly different point of view. If we analyze the way in which novelty has made its way into being, you see that it has consisted of a kind of conquest of dimensionality. The earliest life forms were probably long-chain polymers or viral particles or something. They were essentially points in the universe. They had no sensorium, no sense of direction, no sexuality, no sense of time. They were basically a point-like toehold in matter by this thing which we call organic existence. Over time, these life forms developed motility, meaning the ability to move, and they literally fumbled their way through a universe that they could not see 
dealing with each moment sequentially, but this sequential exploration of space-time represents the first conquest of dimensionality out of the point space. Later, organisms sequestered light-sensitive chemistry on their surfaces and became aware of a gradient of light, which gives the concept here and there and the possibility of moving toward the light. This is a further conquest of dimensionality. The rest of the whole history of life, up until very recently, then, is the story of producing better organs of locomotion, better fins, better wings, better feet and arms as higher and higher animals arise, ultimately coordinated binocular vision. And then, at that point, rather than the conquest of dimensionality being halted, one particular organism makes an ontogenetic leap to the phenomenon of language. Language is a biological strategy for finding time. Specifically, it's a way of remembering what happened and anticipating what might happen. It explodes the animal consciousness away from the now and creates the incredibly complex web of syntactical and semiotic structures that we know as language. This process is very quickly, compared to previous developments, followed by a second development, the discovery of writing. Now, it's not simply a matter of handing on oral traditions from generation to generation. Suddenly now, the freezing of time is a very realistic undertaking. Uh, discourse flows into sign, signification in clay and stone, and time is frozen. And the triangulation of the future proceeds through the evolution of the kind of mathematics that we see at Stonehenge and so forth. This unique strategy that the advanced primates created, the strategy of using language to bind time, is what the process we call civilization has been all about. And now, with electronic media, enormous databases, the ability to use Telenet and Usenet and move around the planet from library to library with a few keystrokes, essentially, we are completing the program of downloading all of the past into virtual accessibility. And as we do this, we are essentially propelling ourselves into this much ballyhooed domain called cyberspace. Cyberspace is the human transition into a mathematical superspace where we, as a collectivity, become optionally a single point of view. Okay, now.
What this all means, then, is that human history and, human, and biological evolution, and in fact the entire unfolding of the process of the universe, it is not something pushed from behind like the falling of a row of dominoes. In other words, the scientific assumption of causal uh, necessity is only part of the story. The universe is under the spell of what I call a transcendental object, or what chaos theory calls an attractor. There is actually a teleological arrow to process. It is being drawn through ever into ever more novel domains, and it spends less time in each domain of novelty until it moves on to the next one. This is what Whitehead called concrescence. It's what it means that in a hundred years, we've gone from a world where most people didn't possess telephones to a world where most people can call anywhere in the planet uh, as long as they can afford it. Concrescence, the knitting together, the dissolving of boundaries, this is the key to novelty. Novelty is achieved by the flowing together of domains that were previously separate. They may be the haploid portions of a chromosome, or rich people and poor people, or ravers and travelers, or Marxists and Democrats. The point is, ideas become constipated when they're sealed away from other idea systems. The main thing going on in the 20th century is a dissolving of boundaries. All the boundaries that historical civilization put in place. I mean, what has the, thousand, the past thousand years been about except building class differences, race differences, sexual differences? We've had religious wars. We have factionalism is how we relate to the world, and with the final culmination being the dog-eat-dog -dog vision of nature that we inherit from British natural science in the 19th century. Now, the new metaphor is fusion, union, cross-fertilization, uh, dissolution of boundaries, melding into an enormous stew of virtual and interactive creativity. What this is all leading to, I believe, is, uh, well, what I call the Big Bang. I'm sorry, the Big Surprise. And, and as I describe it to you, the reason I said Big Bang is because I want you to remember, as I describe this cosmogony to you, what the, is stored somehow in the DNA. You remember there are vast segments of the DNA which do not appear to be dedicated to genetic transcription of proteins. These have always been dismissed by science, the so-called silent sequences. But 
The silent sequences may not be designed to be read by a ribosome to produce a protein. The silent sequences of DNA may be, in fact, encoded information of the sort of information you and I think of as information. And when the drug molecule fits in there, it broadcasts an expanded electron spin resonance signal off the molecule and this is the psychedelic experience. It's being conducted into the Akashic memory banks where all this DNA-coded information is happening. The fact is, that's pure speculation and there are many molecular biologists who would sneer at it but they're not on a secure ground as they suppose. In, if there is one issue in the past 40 years that science has failed utterly to make any progress on, it's the question of, of memory. No one understands how it works. And the best models uh, to date are completely inadequate to the data. So I believe uh, that this, the game is not in on this, and uh, it would make a certain amount of sense, wouldn't it? The psychedelic experience sort of is like experiencing a vast blast of memory data. Uh, uh, those of you who have done it, have you noticed the weird, now I'm an infant again, aura that sometimes attends it. I mean, when I do DMT, I actually feel my body proportions become infantile. I feel my head get bigger and my legs shrink. I mean, it's only a part of the experience. You have to notice it. But it, it seems to me very suggestive that we are actually entering hyperspace. You are experiencing yourself your whole life. Not just now, but back, 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 back. There's lots of work to be done, yes. The intensity of the DMT experience diminished when you take it with MR and you expand it. Does the, does the DMT experience diminish when you take it with MAO inhibitors? I, I would think that you might lock it in at a fairly high level of intensity. Yes, it does. Definitely does. Be sure you're prepared before you try that stuff. Uh, other people I know have tried DMT and had ordinary trippy experiences, e.g. aliens, doors opening. No one has tried these no one has had these vast experiences you describe. Could it all be in the mind and you see these things because you have a wide scientific academic background in your head already? Well, the thing about DMT is that it does make a certain demand of courage and the leather-lunged smokers among us are in a superior position. The difference between one toke and two is enormous. The difference between two tokes and three is staggering. So you, you have to push it. And I, I believe that it's quite safe. 
I mean, people say, is it dangerous? And you know my answer, only if you fear death by astonishment. <laughs> but that's not a joke. Death by astonishment doesn't seem like such an unlikely proposition when you're out there. So, you know, you sort of have to gauge a friend of mine once said at DMT, he said, every time I do it, I try to stand more. And, and that's what it's like, because ultimately it is going to overwhelm your intellectual machinery. If it doesn't blow it out in the first 30 seconds, it will blow it out later, because ultimately the mind fails. The descriptive apparatus melts. The measuring instruments are vaporized, and the, the thing is just uh, what it is. So you want to uh, proceed carefully, but with courage, with courage. And I, I, if, if your friends tell you you're getting nutty, you should listen to them. Uh, because it does have a tendency to magnify inflationary images in the psyche. In other words, if you're, if you're not flawlessly solid, it, it will act like an x-ray of just where the fault lines lie in your particular world. This question is, do you believe that it is necessary to be in a certain mind space before entering a trip uh, to give maximum effect? Well, I mean, I, my, it's very, very simple. It's six hours without food and silent darkness. Telephones unplugged, comfortable, reassuring environment. That's all. It, it's... It's not about tanks, and it's not about social situations like this that are dense with noise, people, pheromones, social signaling. I mean, it would rip you apart a really deep trip. I mean, I think, I, I, let's not underrate cannabis for crying out loud. I mean, I think cannabis should be the glue of the community. It's really important to go botanical, to be as botanically psychedelic as possible. You see, the very best of the white powder drugs are still impossible to verify as to purity and source. So uh, it, it's just a fool's game. The plants will not play you false. So I think that's very important. Do you think the industrial political system will be able to manipulate consciousness through technology, biotelemetry bi-plants, implants, and prevent our minds evolving and accepting the transcendental object? Well, this thing about fearing technology in any form, what you've got to understand is when you go into these places like Autodesk and Silicon Graphics and like that, you have the suits above the 20th floor. But everybody below the 20th floor has hair down to their ass, is heavily tattooed, pierced, they're rocking. So we own this technology. They do not understand it. You know, it was a miracle that Richard Nixon could erase 18 and a half minutes on a tape recorder and get it right. 
They have to pay us to run their technology. They can't write code. They can't run the nets. It belongs to us. And, and uh, I, I see this trend simply accelerating. The technical community is, is by no means uh, part of the opposition. The technical community is going to be there when we reach the barricades. What, what, what kind of music or sound, if any, would you use for DMT? And also, what does DMT sound like? <laughs> what kind of music would I use with DMT? Well, I, I have done DMT with music, but I've regretted it nearly every time. I've done it uh, with Locatelli's Violin Concerto number 11. That was a long... And the reason these are not contempo deals is because I haven't done it with music for 30 years because it alarmed me. Uh, I, I did it with Carl Heinz Stockhaus and that really alarmed me. Uh, as far as what DMT sounds like, it sounds, uh, well, somewhat like this. And then, of course, there's a, a, a that's the kind of sucking, pulling thing that happens as you tumble down these disystolic organismic hallways that are pulling and tugging you forward. And then, of course, you, you, you get in, at least for me, into the, what I call the elf hive. And then there is, for me and for some people, I mean, it hits people differently. I, I saw a woman uh, not long ago, it was very interesting, uh, have the most amazing orgasm I've ever seen. And, and I've seen a lot of people do DMT, and, and this just left everybody's jaw hanging. This woman, a very nondescript sort of person, but she certainly got on. And she was saying during it, don't send me back. I can't leave you. I can't leave you. What happens to me uh, in reference to the sound thing is language. I see elves, sort of, dribbling self-jeweled basketballs, but the main activity at the higher doses is that these autonomous machine elf soul creatures make objects with language. They, they somehow language in the DMT state is transduced through the eyes. You see syntax and you are in fact impelled to join with them in these long spontaneous bursts of language-like activity that sound sort of like this.
everybody dies. So our friend is the information transfer network, the media. We have to set in motion means, models that will attract loyalty. Remember last year I, I quoted William Blake and I said, if the truth can be told so as to be understood, it will be believed. It's as simple as that. The obligation on us is to communicate the truth so that it is understood. The belief will take care of itself. And, uh, you know, I'm all for this zippy thing. It's a high-stakes game because a stumble will delay the agenda. But I've been coming to Britain now for five or ten years, five years, and each time I've seen this scene expand, broaden, deepen, and I've seen its resolve coalesce. And I think it's now to take this thing on the road. You know, America is undergoing the illusion of, an, of a liberal administration. I think we need to strike at the great beast before Rothschild takes Afterwards, we're going to um, have a Tibetan healing doctor upstairs in the Tenda Silent Suite. There'll also be Terence Blair's book and some of the older ones last year. I mean, also will be in sale up there, and he'll probably be doing some signing after about 11.30. All right. Um, well, they're coming in thick and fast. I'll try to work with the Millennium in the middle. I don't know what's up there. Invisible landscape. Is all around Invisible landscape is all around It's also out in America now, but I don't know if anybody's imported it into Britain yet. It is out. It's great. I'm very happy with it. I'm ready to retire at this point. Uh, my message is essentially done once that book is available. Yeah. yeah, this is what I want to get behind. Your views seem to be typically millennium, millenniumism. Seem to be typically millenniumism. Are you the year 2000 shapes consciousness? What do you think? I've often wondered. I want to get Terence to get behind the year 2000, not the year 2012, because I think we can't agree about the year 2000. What the hell are we ever going to agree about? You know. Well, I'm not so... If you look at the time wave, you'll see that uh, the year 2000 is uh, lined up with events in Christian history so hysterical that we might as well hand it over to... You're listening to The Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. And, unfortunately... That is exactly where the recording cut off. And just when Terence was beginning to uh, dance around that 2012 issue, uh, at least so it seemed to me, I'd uh, actually kind of forgotten how millenarian Terence could get at times. Uh, like in this talk when we heard him say that it is now time to decamp from three-dimensional space. Now, a few years ago, words like that still stirred the hearts and minds of people and uh, led many to believe that on December 21st, 2012, there would actually be some sort of global transformation of humanity. 
And while I've been attempting to debunk that idea for several years now, and uh, not always convincingly enough for some people, I guess, I still doubt if uh, there are many people left who are thinking that something big is going to happen on the 21st. And thankfully, it's only now a week away before uh, even the most fervent end-of-the-worlders among us are going to have to begin looking ahead for a new date for a predicted apocalypse. However, I think that the main thing to keep in mind when listening to one of Terence's raps is what Dennis said about his brother uh, being primarily a poet and entertainer. He most definitely wasn't a prophet and never claimed to be one. As Dennis wrote in The Brotherhood of the Screaming Abyss, and I quote, His rap was not science. It was not exactly philosophy either. It was poetry. And Terence was inventing himself as the Irish bard of the psychedelic zeitgeist. Through him, many listeners learned to trust their intuitions rather than simply accepting the assumptions of science and secularism, dreary existentialism, and religion. Well, in other words, uh, the way I see it, Terence not only got us to think outside of our cultural boxes, he also gave us permission to trust our own thoughts. I can think of no higher calling of a teacher, actually. Terence didn't teach us what to think. He taught us how to think. And for me, that's the sign of a true teacher, which is uh, how I personally see the Bard McKenna. Now, near the end of the talk that we just now listened to, we, we heard Terence mention what he called this zippy thing and taking it on the road. And what he was talking about was the Zippy Pronoia tour that Fraser and his merry band led across the U.S. later that year, as I recall. And uh, before I forget, although we didn't get to hear much from Fraser just now, if you don't already know about Fraser Clark, then you owe it to yourself to learn more about him. Early on uh, here in the salon, I podcast two talks by Fraser, both of which uh, I'll link to in today's program notes, which, as you know, you can uh, get to via psychedelicsalon.us. But the headline about Fraser is that he was at the very center of the worldwide psychedelic community, uh, essentially since its beginning in the 60s and right up through the rave scene. In fact, Fraser walked the talk better than anyone I've ever known. He was, uh, he was the real thing, an archetype for us all. As was, in uh, some ways, the Bard McKenna. As I mentioned earlier, uh, I just finished reading Dennis McKenna's new book, The Brotherhood of the Screaming Abyss. And, in my opinion, it's a book that you will most definitely want to read, uh, particularly if you have any interest at all in not just the McKenna brothers, but in a story about coming of age in the 60s. At some points, it uh, almost reads like a novel that's uh, so interesting it's hard to put down. In short, uh, this is not only an important work of tribal history, it's also extremely well written and a true joy to read. I guess that uh, part of its allure for me is that it uh, brought back my own memories of that extended moment in time that we think of as the 60s. And I've often told some of our younger saloners that, uh, hey, they didn't really miss anything by not being alive back then. The real action is here and now. Uh, Compared to what's going on today, uh, seems to me the 60s were really boring, uh, particularly if you lived in a small town like I did. I only finished reading Dennis's book last night, and uh, so I have yet to go back through all of the passages that I've underlined uh, so as to gather a little more comprehensive understanding of all that I just read. Not only does Dennis uh, share some very revealing stories about himself and about Terence, he also provides some uh, very cogent and introspective asides that uh, add significant value to this long labor of love by Dennis. 
And there's much more that I want to say about uh, his book, but I'm going to save those comments for a few weeks so that I can first follow the conversations about it on the various online forums where it's being discussed. Also, uh, that'll give you some time to read the book for yourself and uh, maybe add some comments about it to the program notes for today's podcast. I think that you'll perhaps discover, uh, after thinking about some of Dennis's insights, uh, well, you may discover some of the reasons for your own interest in psychedelic consciousness, whether you're a psychonaut yourself or simply an interested observer of the continuing evolution of human consciousness and the cultures that we create. And speaking of things that we humans have created out of next to nothing, what about the winter solstice of 2012, you ask? <laughs> you know, originally I hadn't planned on even commenting about it and, uh, until the world actually ended. But as I mentioned at the beginning of today's podcast, my original plan of uh, action for the Palenque Norte series uh, kind of got interrupted and fell apart a little. And uh, then I did a quick internet search and learned that there are actually still a lot of people who think that the ancient Mayans uh, predicted the end of the world and it's going to uh, happen really soon. Uh, it's only seven days away, you know. And if you happen to be looking for something relevant to do on December 21st, 2012, one suggestion is to uh, check out the Unify Project, which you can find at www.unify.org. And there you're going to find a timeline and a calendar of some of the events taking place around the world on that day and beyond. And uh, I know that some of our fellow Slaughters are involved in that effort, and uh, you may want to look into it yourself. Now, as it turns out, uh, the next speaker, uh, not the one that I planned on, but the one after that, which would be the next one uh, in the Planque Norte series, uh, is Daniel Pinchbeck. And now it looks like that my podcast of Daniel Pinchbeck's talk will actually go out on the 21st of December, which uh, I think is a very appropriate date for uh, Daniel to be our guest speaker that day. So until the winter solstice of 2012, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. <laughs>